Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. Many years ago, Jesus asked his disciples, Who do you say that I am? And while the disciples said, well, many people say different things, finally Peter himself says, you are the Son of God, the Messiah. See, this question about Jesus, who Jesus is, is is of utmost importance. Because if we have an incorrect view of Jesus, we certainly will not trust him, or worship him, or follow him. And really, at the end of the day, our eternal destiny hangs in the balance in our understanding of who Jesus is and his work. You know, it's interesting how there are people, even in this day and age, who call themselves Christians and even name the name of Jesus and say something about his work. And yet they are so mistaken and they are out there simply to deceive people. You have cults like uh, Jehovah Witnesses. They come knocking at your door and they will, you know, they will say, yeah, we're Christians too. And, and they will talk about Jesus as, as well. But you know, in their understanding... Jesus is just a God, a small God. In fact, according to their belief system, Jesus is simply the Archangel Michael. And it is through him that is God created the world, this Archangel Michael, and then finally uh, everything else that has happened. But that is so foreign to what Scripture says Jesus is. Then you think of the Mormons or the Latter-day Saints. Well, they teach that Jesus is a spirit child. He's actually uh, the brother of Satan. And isn't it funny that Jesus is not a created being. He is God incarnate. And it's funny because, you know, the minute... We stand in this world pledging our allegiance to King Jesus and say that He is God. He is God manifest in the flesh. All hell breaks loose, so to speak. And everybody wants to stand up against us. And yet, you know, you can use the name Jesus, but you bring it down to, oh, Jesus was a good man. They'd be fine with it. Jesus was a prophet. They'd be totally fine. You know, Jesus is an angel or an archangel. Everyone will be more than happy to celebrate with you. And yet when you say Jesus is God and the only God who made himself manifest in the flesh and the only way through whom we can be saved, nobody wants to speak to us anymore. And so there's always this temptation for us as we live in this world 
where we can hear about Jesus, but either because of the attractions of this world or because of persecution against who Jesus is and against Christianity, our eyes can get blurred to the person and work of Jesus. So it's important that we have a clear vision of who Jesus is, a clear understanding of who Jesus is. See, the Jewish Christians that this book of Hebrews was written to, they were living in a time when the persecution toward Christians were just slowly ramping up. And because they were Jewish Christians, previously they were Jews, they followed Judaism. So on the one side there is the pressure of persecution, and on the other side, during this time when there is persecution towards Christianity, there were certain religions that were not being persecuted, and one of them was Judaism. And so for these precious Jewish Christians, there's the, the pressure of persecution, and then they're looking at their family and their community and everything else that they've come out from. In fact, communities that they've even been kicked out from, and even their inheritance given off and kicked off from their homes and, and whatever else, ostracized from the society that they grew up in. Now there's this temptation to want to go back to Judaism. Because hey, ultimately there's spirituality there, there's God, and certain aspects of God's revelation is there. So there was this pull towards wanting to go back to Judaism. And so the author of Hebrews writes to encourage these Jewish Christians to say, no, 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 don't turn back from Jesus. I know there's things that are causing you to blur your vision of Jesus. And you're tempted to go back to Judaism. Don't go back to Judaism. And so last week we saw of how the author starts by saying, the final revelation of God, God who has spoken through centuries, even in the Old Testament times, now in these uh, last days, has spoken to us his final revelation, the final piece of of the puzzle in and through his son, Jesus Christ, the perfect and full revelation of God. And we saw in there how he is the heir of all things and how he is really the end and the beginning and the middle of all things. That he himself is God and that he's the one who has purified us of our sins. And we saw how he, as a result of that completed work, he has sat down at the right hand of God on high. It's been a completed work. Now from there, the author will now talk about how Jesus is superior to the angels. Now you say, why is he talking about, why is he comparing Jesus to angels? Well, the Jewish uh, people during those times, in fact, even as you read the Old Testament, you see how the angels were magnificent beings, powerful beings, and they even brought the word of God, the revelation of God. In fact, in Hebrews 2, it will say that even the law was given to Moses by the angels. 
And so, just as the author has said, God has revealed himself ultimately and finally through his son. Perhaps maybe they're just thinking of prophets and men and things like that. And then he's lifting their gaze up to heaven and saying, yeah, you want to go up to heaven, some supreme being that you might be tempted to cling on to? Or perhaps these people are saying, oh, you know, just that temptation to not see Jesus as the God-man, but maybe just an angel, you know, or maybe the same level as angel. And so the author of Hebrews will now compare Jesus to the angels to show how he is superior to the angel. And I trust that even this morning as we get a greater picture of who Jesus is, it will cause us to really give thanks to Jesus and worship Jesus and trust him and obey him. Now I've titled this morning's sermon as... Jesus is better than the angels. And we'll look at how Jesus is better than the angels under two headings. We're going to look at Jesus' privileged position in verses 5 and 6, and Jesus' privileged function in verses 7 through to 14. But before we look at that, I, I want to pick back up again verse 4 as we ended there and even though 1 to 4 is just one statement in the Greek and just one thought I want to go back to verse 4 because it also serves as a transition to why now he's talking about the angels and comparing the angels to Jesus in verses 5 through to 14 so just look back with me again at verse 4 so this is Jesus having sat down at the right hand of God after making purification for sins, it says he became or having become as much superior to the angels as the name as he inherited is more excellent than theirs. And last week as we ended, we looked at the fact where it said having become superior to the angels, meaning Jesus as God-man, not Jesus as just the divine who has existed from all of eternity, but Jesus now as God-man, as he took on flesh, he, he became less than the angels, as we will see in chapter 2, for a time. And then now in his exalted position as God-man, he is now superior, has become superior to the angels. And notice also it says, as the name he inherited is also more excellent than theirs. So I want to pick up from there. So what's this name that Jesus has been given that is more excellent than the angels? Well, I would say the name that Jesus has inherited as he's now given this privileged uh, honor of sitting at the right hand of God is the name Son. That Jesus has been given the name Son. Now again, you might be thinking, but hang on a second, he's... Hasn't he been the eternal son of God from eternity past? Yes, he has been the eternal son of God from eternity past. But again, the difference is now Jesus as God-man, seated at the right hand of God, is now as God-man given this name as son. 
But you say, what's the point? Like, I, I, I don't understand. Well, that's what the author of Hebrews will now explain. What does that mean? What, what's the significance of that, of Jesus having this, being given this name of son? So let's start with that privileged position in verse 5. For, again, giving the reason, you know, this name that he's been given. Uh, why is it significant? And so the author says, because, or for, to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. It's a rhetorical question. Answer, no one. In the Old Testament, the angels as a group collectively have been called as sons of God. You particularly see that in the book of Job. Job 1.6, for example, where it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God, speaking of the angels, came to present themselves before the Lord. So the group, the angels were called as sons of God, but no single angel was ever called the son of God. And the author now quotes from two Old Testament passages to support this privileged position and this title that he's been given. First, he quotes from Psalm 2.7, and the second quote is from 2 Samuel 7.14. Now, because the first quote from Psalm 2 is really just, uh, you know, Psalms are a song. It's just a poetic expression of what is mentioned in the second quote from 2 Samuel 7. Let's begin with the second quote. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, this is taken from 2 Samuel 7 and verse 14. Really, 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 17, that's an important passage that we should all know. It's a passage that talks about the covenant that God made with King David. It's also called as the Davidic covenant, the covenant that God made with King David. Now, in that covenant, God said that Israel's king will come from David's line that they, all of Israel's king will be David's descendants. And specifically, these Davidic kings, this covenant states, will relate to God in a very special relationship as a father to a son. So from God's side, when you think about it, so from God's side, there's a focused love and care that God has for his Davidic king that God doesn't have for others. And, as, and from the Davidic king's side, he has the responsibility of living out as the obedient son of God by representing God as his father, the ultimate king of the universe. But you say, well, how is this king supposed to, Davidic king supposed to represent God as his father? Well, as a son of God, the king was to re represent God's rule to the people by ruling with, with justice and righteousness, just like how God rules. 
Now this idea of sonship and ruling, it started all the way back in Genesis. Yeah, that's why Genesis is an important book. It started all the way back in creation. Remember, Adam was created in the image and likeness of God. And because Adam was created in the image and likeness of God, Adam could then image God. He could represent God. And, and the mission that he was given was to exercise God's rule over all creation and establish God's kingdom on earth. That was the mission given to Adam. So this special relationship that Adam had with God to image God and to rule on behalf of God is exactly why then we read in Luke chapter 3 verse 38 where Adam is called what? The son of God. Because Adam was called to image God and reflect the rule of God and establish the rule of God and establish his kingdom on earth. But Adam sinned and rebelled against God. And he failed in his rule as the son who would represent God and rule over all creation. But God being gracious and merciful promised that he would make things right. And God promised these things. He promised that the curse of sin and death would be reversed. He promised that creation would be restored. And he promised that Satan would be defeated. And how would God accomplish all this? Through another Adam. Another man, the seed of the woman. And through this other Adam, through this seed of the woman, God's kingdom would one day again be established on earth. So when God says to David, Israel's king will come from your line from now on, and I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to him, God is saying, I will have the same relationship with the Davidic king as I had with Adam, and they will have a similar purpose. My special care and love will rest on Israel's king. And when he disobeys, I will discipline him as a father. It's an exclusive privileged relationship. As for the Davidic king, like Adam, like a son, he had the responsibility of living out as an obedient son and representing God. In other words, Adam's role is now given to the Davidic king to rule in God's image and likeness and establish God's dominion over all the earth. Now let's turn to the first quote in Hebrews 1.5. And this is taken from Psalm 2.7, which is part of our reading this morning. You are my son, and today I have begotten you. Now, some scholars think that one of the occasions when this Psalm 2 was sung was when the kings of Israel were coronated. Now, I'm not entirely sure if that is true, but if it is true, then Psalm 2-7, this passage that's quoted in he Hebrews, 
would be a reminder of the covenant that God made with David. It would be a reminder to the newly coronated king that he was also now recognized as the son of God. And so when it says, today I have begotten you, it's not somehow saying God has now physically given birth to this king. He's saying that from today, as you're appointed as the Davidic king, you represent me. You are my son. You have this privileged position with me, privileged relationship with me, and my special love rests on you. And you, my son, as the Davidic king, have the responsibility to function as the Son of God. In fact, Psalm 2.8 then even says, where God says to the Davidic king, ask of me and I will give the nations and the ends of the earth will be your possession. Meaning that the Davidic king would rule over all the earth and establish God's kingdom over all the earth. What does that sound like? That's the task that was given to Adam. So another Adam, another man, the, the seed of the woman who would defeat Satan, restore God's creation, and establish God's kingdom on earth would now be a Davidic king. And this ultimately pointed to Jesus. Because David's son Solomon, as well as all the other Davidic kings that came from this line, failed in their role as the Son of God. They sinned and disobeyed God and failed to live up to the title of being the kingly Son of God. But following the Old Testament times, in these last days, another son of Adam another man from the line of David has come into this world. And what is his name? Jesus. Jesus, as a man, obeyed God in every way, even unto death. So God raised him from the dead and has now appointed him as the Davidic king, as the son of God, seated at God's right hand. Listen to what Paul said to the people at Antioch in Acts 13, 32 to 33, if you're thinking I'm making this up. This is Paul preaching. He says, And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. In other words, Paul is saying that ultimately what, is, what was said in Psalm 2 was about Jesus. That when Jesus was raised from the dead and taken into heaven, that's when God said to Jesus, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And that's when Jesus is appointed as the Davidic king, the son of God, seated at the right hand of God. 
Now you might be thinking, well, wasn't he always the son of God and wasn't he always king? Yes, again, the eternal son of God has always been the son of God. There's never been a time when he wasn't the eternal son of God. And in his divine nature, he has always been king as well. But the eternal son became a man, another Adam from David's line. And as a man, he was fully obedient to God, even unto death. And so now as a man, he is now appointed as the Davidic king, as the son of God, a man who is characterized by everything that is meant when it is said he is the Son of God. And again, what's the big deal with Jesus becoming God-man and officially being appointed as the Son of God, as the Davidic King? Because again, think about this. No one else could be this. No one else could be the Davidic king, the son of God. Because the Davidic king had to be a man who had to come from the line of David. And the promise was that a man would always rule from David's throne. And his kingdom would be established forever. And he had to be fully obedient. He had to be a fully obedient son as a man. And yet this man couldn't just be a man. But he had to be God to do what he did and to be fully obedient to God and to bring about God's plan. And so Jesus as God-man, something that Jesus wasn't for all of eternity, from the line of David, fully obedient to God as a man, is now officially crowned as the Messiah, the Son of God, who is going to return one day to establish God's kingdom on earth. This was God's promise to David, and even going back to Adam, that a man would establish God's dominion on earth. And only Jesus, as God-man, can fulfill this promise. Now the author goes on to say in verse 6, And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all, let all God's angels worship him. Now the son is referred to as the firstborn son. Now as we've seen in Genesis, this title of firstborn son doesn't necessarily go to the one born first. Remember Joseph, one of the youngest sons of Jacob, he got the firstborn birthright. The firstborn title or the birthright was a title of great privilege. It meant that this person had higher rank than his brothers and would be the heir of the family and the major portion of the inheritance would go to this one who had the birthright. In fact, Psalm 89.27, where God talks about the Messiah, the ultimate Davidic king, speaks of him this way, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Of all the kings of the earth, 
of all the sons of God. You, my Messiah, you, Jesus, will be my firstborn son. The relationship that God has with Jesus as the Messiah is a unique and unparalleled relationship that he has that he does not have with anyone else. Jesus has the greatest and highest privilege of being God's son. The love and the care and the attention that God has for Jesus is unparalleled and unique. And as the preeminent son, Jesus now will get the whole world as his inheritance. And so verse 6, when it says, when God brings the firstborn, or when the firstborn comes into the world again, let all the angels worship him. Now, I don't think this is talking about the first coming of Uh, Jesus and as he became a babe because the word used for world here is the exact same word that is translated in Hebrews 2 5 as the world to come so this is talking about when this is talking about Jesus second coming when he will establish God's kingdom on earth When Jesus will rule over all the earth as the Messiah, as the Son of God. And as Jesus reigns supremely over all, reflecting the very reign of God, all the angels too, without exception, will worship Jesus. Why? One, because they're told to, they're commanded to. But I would think even inherently because they recognize that this man, Jesus, is indeed God in the flesh. That's why the way he rules reflects the perfect rule of God himself. So to sum up this section, we see Jesus is superior to the angels because he's categorically in a greater position to the angels. God has a special relationship with Jesus as a father to a son. And even that, as a particular son, as a unique son, as a firstborn son, and this is a relationship that no angel has with God. Angels don't have this father-son relationship with him. God's special love and care for Jesus is one that is unparalleled with any angel or anyone else. And Jesus has the privileged position of being crowned as the Son of God, the Davidic King, as the one who fulfills God's plan of redemption and as one who will receive the world as his inheritance. No angel is given that privilege. In fact, precisely because angels recognize Jesus is categorically different, uniquely greater than them, they give their worship that is due them. And if anyone is tempted toward angels, or if they like angels, then they better like who the angels like, 
because the angels themselves are saying, Jesus is better. May we as believers never see Jesus as any less than the God-man. May we never bring Jesus to the level of just a man or some other created thing. May we never fill our minds perhaps with maybe some celebrity or maybe, maybe some preacher that we like so much. So much so that there's Jesus and there's this other person. May we never be ashamed to speak of Jesus as God in the flesh who alone deserves to be worshipped. Whether it's before the cults, whether it's before the world, and even if the world, all the world comes against us. May we ever seek to lift up Jesus and show how worthy he is of our worship, even in the way we live our lives. May Jesus be seen as most valuable and most worthy of worship as we live our lives on this earth. So that's the privileged position that Jesus has, and that makes him greater than the angels. And from there, we move on to our second point, Jesus' privileged function in verses 7 through to 14. Verse 7, it says, Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. Now this text is taken from Psalm 104 verse 4. And it's a psalm that gives thanks to the Lord for his power in creation and talks about the Lord's care for his creation as well. And amongst all the creatures that God has made, there's mention of the angels in Psalm 104 as basically one of the other creatures that the Lord has made. And the point that is being made here is that angels are created beings. Yes, they can be glorious and, and mighty uh, and even move swiftly. And when they appear, oftentimes people can be afraid of them. They can send fire from heaven. They can send forth uh, the winds or even hold back the winds. But at the end of the day, what we need to realize is angels are still creatures. And they are ministers of the Lord, simply doing what the Lord has called them to do. Their function is limited. They are always under God's authority and they always function within creation. Remember when my professors described the angel's function like this, said it's like telling... You know, it's, it's like telling someone to do something with Play-Doh. Now, let's say that person can do cool things with Play-Doh, but only things that you tell them to do. But when you think that's so limited, isn't it? Because, one, they don't do anything other than what you tell them to do. 
And on top of that, it's, it's Play-Doh. It's, it's already there. I mean, it's cool, but it's not that cool. Because they can't create something new. They can only play with what is already created. That's what the angel's function is like. They can use what is in creation to do mighty things, but it is only that they can do. They can, but they will always only do what the Lord says to them. They can't create something new of their own, and they can't, even, and they can't bring about everlasting change or do anything to this created order. And what about Jesus, the Son? Well, the author says in verses 8 and 9, But of the, of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the center of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. And therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now this psalm is taken from Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. It's a psalm that talks about a Davidic king in a, in a wedding setting. And as you know, things are said about this Davidic king as a groom, then suddenly addresses this king as God. So again, this, this was a messianic uh, psalm pointing to Jesus, the, the ultimate king who would come. And so what these two verses are saying is that when Jesus establishes his kingdom on earth, he will reign forever and it will reflect the very rule of God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. God's rule will be forever and ever when Jesus establishes his kingdom. And in this kingdom, it says all people will live uprightly. Why? Because this king loves righteousness and hates wickedness. This is a king who will do no wrong. He's committed to the well-being and the good of his people. This will be a time when there will be prosperity and peace on earth. And so it says, for this reason, God will anoint this king with the oil of gladness. Now, what's the oil of gladness? It's not just referring to the anointing with oil at the inauguration of the king, but I think it's more a reference to the anointing that will be there for the whole reign of the king. Meaning that this king, as he reigns, it will be a time when all the peoples from every nation who are part of this kingdom will be joyous and celebrating. You could say it'll be a time when the wine will flow in the land. We saw this in Genesis 49 when we went through it, you know, talking about from the line of Judah, the scepter will come and it'll be a time when even the donkey will be tied to the vine, right? Because there's so much surplus of vineyards and, uh, and wine everywhere and celebration and joy going on during this time when Jesus will establish his kingdom. And so all the world then will know that there is uprightness in this world and joy everywhere because of this man, Jesus, because of who Jesus is and what he has done. 
And Jesus himself will delight in all that has been accomplished and all the world will bow down to King Jesus as God-man. Now comparing what Jesus will do to an angel. Just think about it. No angel is sovereign like this. No angel can bring about such a kingdom, such a world. But Jesus, as the sovereign king, will literally change the world from what it is right now. Now moving on to verse 10 and following. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up. And like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Now this is a psalm that's quotation from Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27. It's a psalm that is addressed to the Lord. And it's a psalm that also says that the Lord will build up Zion. And, and at that time, all the peoples and all the kingdoms will gather together to praise the Lord. And we know that it is when the Lord comes down as the Messiah, all the peoples and the kingdoms will gather together to praise the Lord. So again, this, this has messianic connotations and it points to none other than Jesus himself. And so the author of Hebrews now quotes from Psalm 102. And, and what he's establishing again is that Jesus created the world. You say, well, what's the point of that? Didn't he say that Jesus created the world in verse 2 of Hebrews 1 already? I think the point that he's trying to make here is that the only way you can change the entire world is if you're the creator. And that's who Jesus is. There's a contrast here between Jesus as creator and all of creation. Creation is subject to change. It will decay and it will perish. They will wear out like clothing. But Jesus, on the other hand, is outside of creation. He's not subject to change. His character will not change. His sovereign power will never change. In fact, Jesus will bring the universe to its consummation and change it and roll it up like a garment and make it anew. No angel can do that. No angel can simply roll up the whole entire universe that has gone old and decayed and just roll it up and make it into something new, just like changing of clothes. No angel can do that, but angels, they are subject to certainly change, at least in their position. They can be demoted. But Jesus will never be demoted in any way. He will endure forever. Why? Because he is God incarnate. And therefore, as believers, when you think about this is who Jesus is, 
God incarnate. He's unchanging. Forever remaining the same. And therefore we can trust Jesus to be dependable. We can trust Jesus to be strong enough to accomplish all that God has planned. Now the author concludes this section by saying, verse 13, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? This is from Psalm 110, another messianic psalm. Yes, Jesus is now crowned as the Messiah, seated at the right hand of God. But one day Jesus will return as the Messiah and all his enemies will brought finally into subjection. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is indeed supreme Lord over all, including all the angels. That's who Jesus is. That's his function and that will come to pass. But in contrast, what are the angels doing? The author ends this way, verse 14. Speaking of the angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Think about that. These ministers of God Now he has set up so that these angels can minister to those of us who are believers. To minister to our time of need and to sustain us to the end. You want another reason why you will last to the end? Because he even sends the angels to minister to our need to keep us going till the end. To the end... What is the end? To inherit salvation. And what is ultimate salvation? To be with King Jesus and to ultimately live forever under his rule. So even the angels are serving us to that end, to that destiny which is tied to Jesus and Jesus alone. Now would, wouldn't it be foolish to then go after angels? When the angels proclaim his greatness, when the angels serve his bidding and ministering to us even as believers to that end till we inherit salvation and be with King Jesus? How should our hearts respond? I don't have any fancy application other than to say that we would be thankful to Jesus. That he came down as a man, to represent man, to die as a man, and then to be seated at the right hand of God and to one day establish his kingdom on earth as a man because we failed and we rebelled against God. And not only would we be thankful that we would trust him. Why? Because He is the supreme being. He's the most significant being in the entire world. 
And when everything will be made anew, he will be the person on which everything will be centered on. And he will bring this about. So therefore, if there's persecution coming, or temptations to go this way, let's keep our eyes focused on Jesus. Let's not lose hope. Let's not live in fear. He is supreme and he will, he's strong enough and dependable enough to bring about all that God has planned. And ultimately, that we would worship King Jesus, not just when he returns again, but even now to the watching world, that our lives would very much reflect we're all about King Jesus and no one else. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word that gives us clarity in who you are and how you've revealed yourself in and through your Son. We thank you for the, the depth of truth that is mentioned here in this text about Jesus and who he is and his very function and what he will accomplish. Lord, as we keep going through this book of Hebrews, we pray that our vision of Jesus would not be blurred, but if it would only get bigger and bigger, and we would see him rightly. And as we see him rightly, that we would live in joy, and we would live with hope and not in fear, and we would live with a worshipful and thankful heart, knowing who Jesus is and what he's bringing about. We pray all this in his precious name. Amen.